<laughs> What's up with all the sheep sounds in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast? And he would just make this <laughs> sound. We'll find yeah. out as Daniel Ryan Day leads the group in the second half of our study of John 9 and 10 next on Discover the Word. <laughs> Daniel, you're a bad man. <laughs> The last time on the Discover the Word podcast, Daniel Ryan Day began a study with Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder and Rasul Berry of John 9 and 10 and focused on how understanding the context of a passage like this is so important. Context is king, is the Bible study principle they found helpful. Because as Rasul said, we often tend to separate sections of Scripture from one another that we really shouldn't. Sometimes the chapter splits that happen after the text was created by folks trying to help us understand better, but they can sometimes create an artificial separation. So I've always read chapter 10 as if it had nothing to do with chapter 9, like it was Mm -hmm. just kind of this reflection on being a shepherd. But as we're going to see, as we continue our study of John 9 and 10, that chapter division between 9 and 10 comes right in the middle of a thought, right in the middle of something Jesus is saying. And so in part one of this study, we explored the multifaceted story of Jesus healing a man who had been born blind and why everyone was so confused about what was going on. That was John 9. Now we'll see in John 10 that Jesus continues to work on healing blindness, only a different kind of blindness. And he continues by telling a story, a parable. And so does this story, this parable, immediately clear up all the confusion and heal this other kind of blindness. Well, pull your chair up to the table with the group as we begin another hour of studying the Bible together on Discover the Word. And this is Discover the Word, one of the Bible engagement resources from Our Daily Bread Ministries, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus, the living word in the pages of the Bible. And in this episode, you're going to do that in John chapters 9 and 10 with Daniel and Rasul and Elisa and Bill. And remember, if you did not hear part one of this study, you will be at a bit of a disadvantage. And so at some point, I would encourage you to go to our discovertheword.org website or wherever it is you get your podcasts and listen to all the context discussion of chapter 9, That will lead us toward understanding how all this seems to be an effort by Jesus to reveal who he is. And grasping that message was tough for them. And it's still tough in a lot of ways for us today to truly believe and commit to. So, as I said, next, Jesus tells a parable, or actually a couple of mini parables. Daniel? Before we continue this series that we're on together, let's begin by refreshing ourselves on what a parable is and is not. I thought that would be helpful because we're going to see a bunch of mini parables in John chapter 10. Um, And so we did a series called Jesus the Storyteller where we talked about specifically what parables were in the ancient Near East, what they were, what they weren't, those types of things. So I thought maybe we would just start there. Do you remember some of the highlights of that series? 
I think for me, one of the most valuable is that a parable is not an allegory. Mm-hmm. It's not a story where every single thing in the story has some special significance or meaning. Yeah. And I think it's really important because a lot of folks try to make parables walk on all fours, and they're just not intended to do that. Yeah, sometimes there's just details for the sake of telling a story, and yeah. they don't have special meaning just because Jesus told them in this story. Yeah. Correct. Yes. So when Bill said, walk on all fours, do you realize the symbolism of each of the four legs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be like... allegorical. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like a Aesop's fable. It used to be big back in my kids' day. It had this like moralism mm-hmm. that it would try to illustrate or depict that we were supposed to follow and be like in life. Yeah, and it would often end with... And the moral of the story is uh-huh. don't yeah. flatter others or yeah. don't give in to flattery yeah. or something like yeah. that. Or yeah. don't tell a lie. Or, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, Rasul? Can you think of any? Yeah, and I, I think one, just zooming out for a second and just thinking, isn't it interesting that Jesus decided to use parables and mm-hmm. not simply philosophical you know, proof statements? Or I think there's something about the human experience that we're people of story and Jesus really taps into that because the parables connect with us on an emotional level, on a deep visceral level. And I think there's something about his brilliance as a teacher that these things still connect with us, resonate with us so deeply. But, you know, to piggyback on that, we can miss it, too, because we're not a first century agrarian society. Mm -hmm. You know, so some of the illustrations Jesus uses, we have to you know, punch pause for a second and go back to understand the culture in order to really understand the everyday meaning. I mean, I agree. Of course, Jesus is brilliant, <laughs> but <laughs> we need to to use our wisdom, you know, to step back and go, okay, what was the significance of soil and planting and animals and grain and etc. Yeah, and I think you're onto something there, Lisa, with the culture because what Jesus was doing was not really. I mean, the stories he told were revolutionary, but the act of storytelling wasn't because it was largely an oral culture. Most people were illiterate, and so most information was passed down by word of mouth. Yeah. Mm. And so those are a lot of the things that the parables were not. As we think about what a parable is, which you're kind of starting to already talk about a little bit, uh, one of the examples we used in that series was talking about them like a 4D or 5D or 6D theater, where it's an immersive experience and you come in and you're invited not just to watch a film, but you might feel something tickle the back of your neck, or there might be wind that helps make the film come more to life, or the seats might move, things like that. So it was like this immersive experience where you're invited to see and to feel and to hear and to maybe identify with different people in the story. And then by being in that immersive experience, it changes, it shapes us so that we begin to see God differently, begin to see others differently, the world, ourselves, as we're shaped by the story. And so as we go into John chapter 10, we're going to see Jesus tell a lot of these mini parables And I think that's what Jesus is inviting us into is to picture the story itself, to feel the feels and hear the sounds and to think about the setting. And then as a result of that, what is Jesus trying to say about himself, about the world, about others, about God as we get into those stories? And so to pick up, we're at John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. uh, And maybe, Bill, you could read that for us. Sure. 
Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So before we dive into the parable itself, did you catch that last line? <laughs> yes. what, what does it say and do you find that as encouraging as I do <laughs> yeah d- they did not understand what he was saying to them yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get that <laughs> I think sometimes we think to ourselves like if we were just there and heard Jesus say it we mm. would get it or yeah. something and just it's so encouraging to me that the people that were there they heard it from Jesus mouth they could ask him questions they were just as confused as we sometimes are so when we're confused yeah. we're we're in really good company there and why might this be a confusing response from jesus what is jesus responding to here well it's following his whole conversation about the healing of the blind man and that was quite controversial we had a lot of characters in there struggling with it and then he goes into this parable And it's confusing. You've got gatekeepers, thieves, bandits, shepherds, sheep, Mm -hmm. and who's who. And And what does that have to do with a blind man being healed, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, and this is where, you know, Dan, you've mentioned before how sometimes the chapter splits that happen after the text was created by folks trying to help us understand better, but they can sometimes create an artificial separation. So I've always read chapter 10 as if it had nothing to do with chapter 9. Like it was Mm -hmm. just kind of this reflection on being a shepherd. But in the context of the last thing you hear uh, is the Pharisees challenging Jesus and saying, are you saying we're blind? Because, you know, we, you know, you came to help the blind to see and those who think they see, you're saying that they are blind. And then he turns immediately from that to Okay, let me tell you this story about this shepherd and sheep and thieves coming in from another way. So I think he's really pointing to them as the thieves in the story. Yeah, it's a a sense, are you calling us blind? No, it's worse than that. You're thieves and bandits. That's what you are. (laughs) And you don't know my voice. Yeah. And Jesus was literally in the middle of talking when the chapter division is added. And so it really kind of separates these ideas, even though they're one thought that Jesus is teaching from. The other thing too, so speaking of the blind man, there's a lot of confusion in that story. The man who was healed didn't know who Jesus was for sure at the beginning, but throughout the chapter comes to kind of realize who Jesus was. The neighbors don't know what's going on, so they involve the Pharisees to try to get clarity. The Pharisees split into two groups throughout the chapter because half of them think, well, Jesus has got to be something special because he's doing these amazing works. And then the other half is like, yeah, but the way he broke the Sabbath, he's just a sinner like everybody else. The parents don't know what's going on. Like there's a lot of confusion in the passage. And Jesus's response is to tell this story about gatekeepers and sheep versus what I would expect, which is like, well, let me let me go back through and let's just clarify some things. Instead, he tells a story. And then there's also this theme throughout chapters 7 through 10 of just like a deep confusion on who Jesus is. And that kind of continues to build into chapter 11 as well after this story. I thought it might be helpful to read kind of a highlight of that confusion 
if someone could read John 7 verses 40 through 41, this is capturing this confusion about Jesus that continues to drive the story forward. Sure. When they heard these words, some in the crowd said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? So you can hear the confusion there, right? Like, who is this guy really? What is he trying to do? And that's going to continue throughout this chapter as well. Yeah, the people seemed confused about Jesus's identity, but the religious leaders find out at the end of chapter 8 that in Jesus's mind, there's absolutely no confusion about his identity because he declares himself to be the I am. Yeah, true. and we're going to mm-hmm. see the way this chapter ends in particular. He's going to say something that at the end of chapter 8, they wanted to kill him. In the, this chapter, they're going to want to arrest and kill him as well because of his claims to be God. Let's just try to quickly untangle a few ideas in this. So if someone could read the second half of verse 3 about the sheep. Go ahead, Rasul. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Who was the person in chapter 9 that heard Jesus' voice and followed him? It was the blind man. The blind man. So, mm-hmm. And he obeys Jesus' command to do what? To go, go to the and pool wash. and wash himself. Yeah, you know? and as a result, he's healed. And so at least there's a little hint in this story of like, well, who's the person that's listening and obeying? Okay, we have this man who was born blind. And so in some way, I think the sheep are represented by this man, which would make Jesus the shepherd of the sheep. And what are kind of the characteristics of the shepherd that are described in this passage? Well, he calls his sheep by name and he goes through the gate only Mm. and he calls them out. Mm -hmm. They know his voice. They Mm -hmm. follow him. He goes out in front to lead them. So we begin to see this kind of picture maybe of what Jesus is painting there. There's two more characters in this short section that I'll just mention briefly because it's hard to figure out exactly who they are in the story. There's the role of the gatekeeper, which is to protect the sheep, especially at night and keep them safe from thieves and bandits. They're supposed to know the shepherd. They're supposed to open the gate when the shepherd comes. Who are kind of the religious gatekeepers of Jesus' time? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the elite. Yeah, and are they doing their job as the gatekeepers? In their minds, they are, right? Yeah. But they're actually keeping the shepherd from the sheep. And I appreciated in some of our other conversations, we talked about how we make all Pharisees, all religious leaders, the bad guys. And, you know, there was a sincerity to their efforts to protect the law and to protect the Hebrew people, you know, the Jews for the law. And so I think there's a sincerity there in some cases, and there's a self-righteousness there in other cases. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a sense in which they probably considered themselves the gatekeepers, but Jesus brands them more as the thieves and bandits. Yeah, and the thieves and bandits are the other characters in this little parable. And what are kind of characteristics of a thief and bandit? Do they want what's best for the sheep? No. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they have their own selfish motives. But I think ultimately the point of this parable, as we're invited into this immersive experience, is I think Jesus is trying to help clarify some of that confusion about who he is. Mm. And he's trying to point to the fact that this isn't really about the sheep or the gatekeepers or whatever. He's revealing himself as the shepherd. And so going back to what are some of those characteristics of the shepherd, the gatekeeper opens the door for him. He calls his sheep by name. They know his voice. They follow him. He goes out in front to lead them. 
that's kind of the picture that Jesus is painting of who he is. And I think as we go through the rest of chapter 10, we'll see Jesus kind of building off this idea of him as the shepherd. Well, kind of, because in our next conversation, he's going to call himself something else first. One of the people that, Bill, you and Brian in particular, really encouraged me to read when I first joined Discover the Word was a scholar named Kenneth Bailey. And (laughs) uh, he quickly became one of my favorites because of his expertise in helping paint a picture of what Jesus's time period would have looked like, the cultural settings, the things people would have been thinking about and feeling and things like that. And so I thought it might be helpful as we continue talking about Jesus sharing these parables, specifically about sheep and gatekeepers and all that, to talk about what culturally that would have been like for them, what they would have been picturing and thinking about. Well, the thing that I appreciate most about Dr. Bailey was that he spent much of his career teaching at a seminary in the Holy Land Mm -hmm. area in the Middle East. And he spent a lot of time out in Bedouin villages and out experiencing culture where it still lived very much the same way that it would have been in Jesus's day. So there's a lot of almost firsthand experience on his part that he shares with us in his books. And he's just a brilliant, brilliant guy with that. And one of the things that was really helpful as I was thinking about these parables in particular is just his emphasis on the context of small town village life in particular. And even when we see cities in the New Testament, we think of like really big cities like New York or LA or something like that. But even some of the biggest cities are way smaller (laughs) than what we would picture. And so much of Jesus's ministry and teachings and life happened in these really small villages. And for this context, Those families would own a few sheep. There were some shepherds that had bigger flocks, but for the most part, a lot of families would have a few sheep. At night, there would be a courtyard in the village where several families would put their sheep in together. They would have an agreement on who would watch the sheep at night. And no surprise here, it was usually a kid (laughs) that would be the (laughs) gatekeeper. And in the morning, the shepherd would come and the person who was the gatekeeper would recognize that person because they do Mm -hmm. life together and they're in this small village and they would call the sheep out and the sheep would follow the voice of their shepherd, which was some of what we heard in the last parable that Jesus said. Yeah, sometimes Um, they would have a little whistle and they would blow a certain kind of tone or note Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. each shepherd's group of sheep were kind of trained to listen for that specific thing. And they would use that sometimes to call them. Yeah, like a Hmm. sheep flute is one of the terms, yeah. Yeah. And sheep really are that good at recognizing noises that they get used to. We raised sheep for a while, and one of our sheep in particular, Sven was his name, was (laughs) the loudest sheep you have ever heard in your life. And he would just make this (laughs) sound. Um, And if I did it loud enough, it would like blow people's speakers in their cars because of how loud he was. And Rebecca and I would laugh because as soon as he heard the garage door shut, he would start yelling because he knew that meant my son was bringing his breakfast. Right. So like that's how good at that tone, that sound, recognizing that and knowing what's coming as a result. And that was important because oftentimes the sheep would mingle outside of that, too, at a watering hole or at a stream or something. And so being able to recognize the voice 
the sound, the flute of their shepherd was really important to know who to follow. As we continue looking through these parables and thinking of Jesus as the shepherd who calls his sheep to follow him, kind of keep that picture in mind. And so after many parable number one, where Jesus is kind of describing himself as a shepherd and trying to help people who were confused understand a little bit more about what Jesus was saying, and that ended with they were so confused they didn't know what he was saying, Jesus decides to do the exact opposite of what we'd expect and mix his metaphors and claim to be mm-hmm. something else. So we're going to see that now. <laughs> so yeah. John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. Maybe, Rasul, you could read that for us. <laughs> Got it. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal Mm -hmm. and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Yeah. Yeah, We're used to seeing that last phrase on coffee cups and Mm -hmm. (laughs) banners and pillows and everything else. But it's a powerful statement. I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's a great statement. And that's a good point, Bill, because we detach it from the first part of his statement that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And and they really go together, the contrast Jesus is making. And who is the person that in this context followed Jesus's voice and discovered a different type of life than he had before. The blind man. Yeah, Yeah. the man who was born blind. So there is like a very real example that we're walking with as we get to that idea. It's not just some proverb thrown out there. There's a very real person that it's tied to as well. Mm -hmm. The first section or parable, the point seemed to be the shepherd comes and gets the sheep and the sheep leave with the shepherd. What's kind of the the point of this parable? Well, the big idea, I think, is that because Jesus is the gate of the sheep, he provides their ultimate protection by keeping out the danger. And it's kind of to get in the gate (laughs) and get into the pen with Jesus is Mm -hmm. the gate, which I thought was kind of funny, just the contrast of the two, to walk through the gate, the gate being Jesus. And Bill, you started to kind of pull on that a little bit. What is kind of the role of a gatekeeper and the gate itself? Well, it's to secure the wall. I mean, the function of the gate is really to complete the security on one hand and to provide access on the other hand. And what I understood is that sometimes a shepherd would actually lay himself down in the opening. If there wasn't actually a gate that swung back and forth, he would use his own body and lay down in the opening so that any kind of thief who came to steal and kill and destroy would have to go through him to get to the sheep. And isn't that beautiful image? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a protective element. There's an access element. There's the idea of there being some kind of guard or watchman. It's the way in and out. How does Jesus kind of take those ideas and then unpack them a little bit in the story? Yeah, I'm a little confused about when it says those who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. Like I know earlier we referenced the Pharisees as thieves in the context of Jesus just coming off of talking about how they were blind and then being like, actually, you're worse than blind. But I don't know when he says before me, is he saying immediately before me? Is he referring to somebody else before? So there's this other aspect of the thief and bandit being 
in contrast to the gate, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure all of who Jesus is referring to there. That's yeah. good, Russell. Yeah, thank yeah, you thanks. for describing that because I think that's the exact confusion that the first hearers are feeling too, right? Mm-hmm. As Jesus is like using these metaphors to try to explain who he is, it, it almost feels like it's making it more confusing than helpful. <laughs> and, and honestly, I'm still not convinced too that Jesus is saying the Pharisees were the thieves in the first story because I think they could very much be the gatekeeper that was supposed to let the shepherd in and out and was keeping Jesus from getting to his sheep in a way too. So I think that's part of the immersive experience part of like getting into this story and not just trying to make each thing a clear, oh, well, this person's Mm -hmm. this and that person's that, but allowing it to kind of shape us as we go through. So in the context, I think potentially it's suggesting all those who are standing against Jesus and getting to the sheep, to those whom the Father has sent him, is kind of the first layer, at least. But I also was thinking about the fact we did a series on 1 John, and John goes into an extensive description of who the Antichrists are, like what kind of some of their characteristics were. Do you remember what some of those were? I think one is that they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Yeah, they deny that Jesus is the Christ, and they deny the Father and the Son, Those were like two of the primary characteristics that jump out here. And what is one of the primary things that's happening in these chapters? Well, that's true. Jesus claims that he is the one. They're all coming against that and rejecting him. And, you know, as you said, foreshadowing at the end of this conversation, they're going to try and kill him. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why for me, Daniel, and I'll own this because I was the one who said it. That's why for me, yeah, they may have thought that they were gatekeepers, but their actual, the way they were acting was as the thieves and bandits who were in opposition to the work the shepherd was trying to do. And you told us in our last conversation that this really is a long story arc that starts in chapter 7 and goes all the way through chapter 10. And chapter 7 through 10 of John is one of the most extended periods of conflict that Jesus has with the religious mm-hmm. leaders in the Gospels in one kind of sitting. So I do think that there's plenty of opposition being seen yeah. among them pushing against Jesus and his teaching and his mission. Yeah, and I wonder if that's why when Jesus says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy that would have had a lot more weight in that moment because of all of these stories that are kind of compounding to this moment where Jesus is talking about two different approaches to mm-hmm. to him, to life in general. One of those approaches leads to death and destruction, and one of those leads to abundant life. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is trying to bring that abundant life, which we saw exemplified in the man who was born blind, who was the sheep who listened to Jesus' voice and followed and did what Jesus invited him to do. And if you remember the end of chapter nine, really the climax of the story is not even the fact that the man was healed. The climax of the story is the fact that he worships Jesus in faith at the end of chapter Mm -hmm. nine. That's where he experiences true abundant life. And the healing is just kind of really the icing on the cake for the fact that he's introduced to the Messiah that he's been waiting for as a Jewish person as well. One thing I'm noticing as we kind of sit with this passage, part of the reason for the confusion, I think, is the first few verses, the emphasis is on movement outside of the sheepfold. Yeah. The emphasis is on Jesus guiding sheep out of the sheepfold to where they need to go, probably for 
nourishment, for pasture, for that type of thing. So I'm leading you to provision. But in this section, the emphasis is on the protective nature of yeah. the sheepfold and how the gate is a protection, a barrier between those who would try to seek to do the sheep harm. And so it's a different kind of dynamic that is being emphasized, although the locations that are being described are the same. So in this context, the issue is stay in the sheepfold because I protect you from mm. thieves and bandits who will try to steal mm. you and pluck you away. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so it kind of feels like we're getting somewhere as we begin to pull on some of these threads and see what Jesus is describing. But hold on to your sheep flute, because now that we're comfortable with Jesus being the gate, he's going to claim to be the shepherd again. And we'll pick that up next time. All right. So Jesus said, I am the gate. What that means and how it leads back into Jesus calling himself the shepherd, the good shepherd, and who he put himself in contrast to and who he means he is by saying that is what will produce the shock and anger that's going to characterize how many respond to what Jesus is saying. Well, you're listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Rasul Berry, and Daniel Ryan Day. And they're going to start the next part of their discussion talking about our pets and how, for the most part, we happily take care of our own pets, but we're often not quite as patient and caring with our friends' pets. Well, that tendency in us shows up in another parable in John chapter 10 that we'll get to after we take a short break for this word from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Now, did you know that besides Discover the Word, Our Daily Bread Ministries produces a handful of other podcasts to strengthen and encourage you in your daily walk with Christ? And now they can all be found in one location. There's a podcast for women that Elisa is part of called God Hears Her. Rasul hosts a fascinating podcast in which his guests tell their stories called Where You From? There's a podcast that reads the scripture and the article from our Our Daily Bread devotional. Our office in the UK produces a podcast called Evening Reflections. And some of our co-workers in Australia do a podcast called Anxious Faith. So next time you're online, check out odbmedia.org and explore our different podcasts dedicated to helping you grow in your faith. And whether you're seeking comfort to handle mental health struggles, whether you're hoping to find community to help you navigate everyday life, or you're interested in hearing personal stories from brothers and sisters in Christ, I do hope you'll check out our podcast offerings there at odbmedia.org. And don't miss out on accessing any fresh episodes when they're released by signing up to receive monthly email updates at odbmedia.org. And now let's join the group at the table as Daniel gets into this part of the discussion about sheep and shepherds by asking this question. What's the difference between taking care of your own pet and taking care of someone else's pet. Well, I want to start off by saying that's the reason why I don't have pets. Uh, that way I don't have to take care of any of them. You could use the same analogy of children. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think my children are awesome and my grandchildren are amazing, but sometimes I'm not as thrilled about other ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also don't have pets, but can by extension thinking about the children example that Elisa gave. And I think... 
those who are closest to us, I think we tend to ascribe any faults or frailties to situations. And those who are further away from us, we tend to ascribe it to their character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so if somebody does something, you know, it's like, okay, is this who you are? Who, I, if I don't know them that well, and or versus someone I love dearly, I'm like, oh, they were tired. You know, I'm more likely to yeah. give explanation. Give grace. Yeah. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes yeah. it works in reverse, too. I think <laughs> sometimes we tend to be less patient with those we know best because we know they're not that. True. Mm-hmm. Well, and when they do good. that, mm-hmm. we think, now, what are you acting like that for? That's not who you are. You know, so <laughs> I think that's kind of situational, too, like you're saying, Rasul. Yeah. Well, going back to the pets example, because it feels less controversial to me, and we actually don't have pets anymore either. But, you know, if your dog poops in the house, it's annoying, but you also have kind of an emotional like, oh, something must be wrong. Poor buddy. But when someone else's dog throws up or poops in your house, you're like, stupid dog. Why am I, in- <laughs> Why am I watching this animal? I don't even like dogs, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah all that's good. And Daniel. so yep. the reason I bring that up is because we're going to see Jesus in this next mini parable kind of describe two different approaches to caring for the sheep. And I thought that might be a helpful picture for us to have in our brains as we hear Jesus say these words. So this is John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. And since it's a little longer, maybe we'll, we'll split it up together. But Elisa, if you would get started, that'd be great. You bet. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Again, the Jews were divided because of these words, many of them saying, He has a demon, and he is out of his mind. Why listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You know, some of those words that Jesus spoke there, I wondered how John must have felt about those words when Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. And then John is the one standing at the foot of the cross Mm. watching as Jesus's life is ebbing away. Uh, I wonder if he reflected on those words at all. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down Mm. willingly. Mm. And and just jumping off that for a second, I think more than any other passage potentially, This is the one that should cause us to pause when we describe what happened on the cross and make sure that when we talk about it, we nuance the fact that Jesus chose to be there. Because oftentimes people will say like, well, God sent his son to die or God wanted Jesus to die to rescue us. And it's all about the father killing the son for us, which throughout history, critics have 
you know, and skeptics have said, well, that's just cosmic child abuse, right? That God would do that mm-hmm. to Jesus for mm-hmm. our behalf. But in this passage, we see a very clear picture of Jesus saying, no, I, I lay down my life for the sheep. Yes, the father sent me, but I'm also here as a willing participant in this story and not just because God sent me. So just for us, as we nuance that, as we're describing it. So Jesus describes the good shepherd. This is probably the clearest statement we get so far that, yes, he's the shepherd. Um, We thought he might be the shepherd in the first conversation. Then he said he was the gate. Now he's the shepherd again. So we're getting some more clarity around who Jesus is. In that first conversation, we talked about some of the characteristics of a good shepherd. What were some of those? Well, the sheep know him by his voice, yeah. uh, he calls his sheep by name, which is so specific. You know, you yep. think of other places in scripture where God knows us by name. Uh, that's just in- incredible. You know, and I think about Psalm 139, that he knew us in our mother's womb. You know, he just has intimate knowledge. And then he goes out in front of them. Mm-hmm. And so he takes the risk himself, you know, for them, to lead them, mm-hmm. to guide them. And Russell, as you've said, to lead them in and out, you know, depending upon what the need is. Yeah, and then there's a couple of characteristics that are added in this description of a good shepherd. Did you see those in there? Well, one of the things he does in this mini parable, as you've been calling them, Daniel, is that whereas before the contrast has been to the thieves and bandits, now the contrast is to the hired mm-hmm. hand and the character and not just character, but the concern and care of the shepherd for the sheep is so radically different from the lack of concern of the hired hand who, by definition, is just there to get paid. Yeah, That is so descriptive, Bill. I was really struck by that contrast in reading it again, because the hired hand, as you were talking about how the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, the hired hand ain't going to do that. You know, he's just not going to do that. Off he goes at the little sniff of danger. He's out of there, leaving the sheep uncared for and yeah. why would he do that? Well, the higher <laughs> hand, you know, is hired. The, the, yeah. the key role yeah. in the relationship is it's a salary position versus a shepherd who has, many, in many cases, given, you know, helped these sheep come into the world in terms of delivered them out from their mother, uh, has nurtured them and mm-hmm. carried them if they were wounded and sick and hurt and spent time with them as evident by the fact that they know the shepherd's voice, the shepherd knows their voice. Yeah. You know, Daniel, in our last conversation, you reminded our listeners that we really love at Discover the Word to lean into the work of Dr. Kenneth Bailey. And he did an entire book on the imagery of shepherds and sheep throughout the scripture. And it's like nine or 10 different times that that imagery appears. And it all kind of finds its roots in arguably the most famous shepherd passage, which is Psalm 23. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that makes me wonder if when Jesus says the words, I am the good shepherd, if the people in the crowd's mind would go back to the Lord is my shepherd, Mm. I shall not want, and unpacks from there. Well, and not just there, but there's other places in the Old Testament as well where first Moses and some of the other leaders are described as a shepherd, but ultimately as under shepherds to the ultimate Mm -hmm. shepherd, which was God himself. And so God's described throughout the Old Testament as a shepherd. So I think this is one of the nods that Jesus is giving to the fact that you think of God as your shepherd. I am also 
that shepherd. Because yeah. ultimately, at the end of this passage, he's going to claim to be God in a clear enough way that they want to kill him. Yeah. And there's a mantle of shepherding that goes on with believers, mm-hmm. too. We'll see Peter write about it and reference Ezekiel and poor shepherds. You know, we are called to be God's under shepherds, representing him in our yeah. world. So, yeah, this is a clear metaphor. Yep. And as we think about the hired hand, so it's someone who the sheep don't belong to them, so they run away when there's danger. As we think about chapter nine, who were the people that you could describe it in some way as ran away or fleed the tension that was there? I think of honestly the blind man's parents yeah. kind of just stepped away from the whole situation because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogues. And so they just kind of punted the issue of how did your son get sight? Uh, ask him. He's of age. Yeah. 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 And even the neighbors, to an extent, they got confused. They couldn't Mm -hmm. figure out what was going. So they're like, well, we'll just get the Pharisees to figure it out. And the whole thing started with the disciples. Asking a question. The question itself wasn't a terrible question, but it was a terrible question in the sense that it took this guy in all of his misery and turned him into a riddle instead of seeing him as one of the sheep that's going to be cared for by the shepherd. Yeah. And then we have a wolf in here that causes fear, that scatters, that attacks. Who is kind of that fearful scattering voice in chapter nine? I think definitely the Pharisees uh, are actively trying to challenge and coerce everyone into denying Jesus and even trying to put words in the man who receives sight's mouth to say, well, he's a sinner. So he couldn't have healed you. Yeah. And they put so much tension there that the reason the parents run away is the fact that the Pharisees had made it well known that if you call Jesus the Messiah, you would be kicked out of the synagogue. And so there's that scattering there or that fear that's within chapter nine. And then perhaps Jesus is also just continuing to do what he's done in the first couple parables, which is there's like these two threads going throughout. One thread keeps a nod to who Jesus is and the abundant life that he offers and what he's hoping for his sheep and what he provides. But there's also this thread in each of these parables, which is kind of a negative voice or a fearful voice or a thief or a bandit or a gatekeeper that's not doing their job, or in this case, a hired hand, which is kind of, again, going back to what was the question that the Pharisees asked that initiated all of this teaching that Jesus is giving. Are we also blind? Are we also blind? And so we have this thread of Jesus describing, well, maybe here's some of the things you could look at to see whether you're blind or not. Which of these two groups are you kind of falling into? And that's really how this whole passage ended. We saw in chapter nine that often there were these two groups that formed. One group was convinced that Jesus could not be the Messiah because he broke the Sabbath in such a complete way. Another group was like, yeah, but look at what he's doing. And even the blind man himself said, I don't know if he's good or bad. All I know is once I was blind and now I see. Yeah. And so what are the two groups that we see here at the end of this section? Well, the Jews and Jesus, right? Yeah. But even within the Jews, there's a division of two groups. Yeah. It's interesting, Daniel, you know, as you're walking us through these many parables, we're starting to see the threads that run between them Mm -hmm. in each one. You have this positive figure who is the shepherd, the gate, the good shepherd. In each one, you have the sheep running through it. And in each one, you have the negative character, which is maybe the thief and bandit or maybe the robber or maybe the wolf. 
as Jesus gets deeper and deeper into this set of many parables, things are starting to clear up a little bit. At least it seems that way to me. Yeah. And so the two groups that we see here at the end, one of them says, well, Jesus is a demon and out of his mind, which is really intense now. (laughs) And then the other group is like, these are not the words of someone who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so again, we see those two groups there. Which causes me to think that we can expand who the thief and the bandit is. I think Jesus is escalating this, not just Mm -hmm. to talking about Pharisees or Sadducees or religious leaders, but the person who is blinding even those who don't see him in his true identity, right? Paul would later on refer to the fact that Satan blinds people from being able to see Jesus as the Christ. And so the fact that they now are connecting this to a demon possession is the utter height of the blindness to see that you're actually attributing the one who is God incarnate to being demon possessed because you don't understand what he's saying. That's a real depth of blindness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really kind of what we see unfolding throughout each of these is there was a group of Pharisees that had assumptions about who Jesus was based on their desire to keep the Sabbath perfectly. And because Jesus did things differently, they were holding on so tightly to that that they could not see Jesus outside of a Sabbath breaker. Hmm. And so they miss the healing. They miss what Jesus is describing. They miss the abundant life that Jesus wants to offer because they're holding so tightly to that. And it seems like that's getting more intense the deeper into this story we get. Just like bias and blind spots work in our life too, the more we just see them confirmed because that's what we believe. And so Jesus is just confirming to them the bias that they were already holding as the story kind of started. And as a result of that confusion, more division between the Jews, the Jews are going to finally get to the point of asking Jesus, please just tell us plainly, (laughs) are you the Messiah or not? And we'll see how Jesus responds to that question next time. Yeah, bias and blind spots were a problem for them, and they can certainly be a problem for us as well. We're working our way through John 10 in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, and next they're going to talk about expectations and why during the time of the year when Hanukkah was being celebrated, people would have been especially eager for Jesus to meet or to exceed their expectations about what Messiah was going to be and do. Yeah, expectations can be pretty powerful things, can't they? I think we all have experience with that. So let's listen. We're picking up in John 10, verse 22 through 30. And Elisa, I was wondering if you would just read that section for us. You bet. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What the Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I 
are one. So first, just kind of a observational question. How much time passes between verses 21 and 22? A couple of months because back in chapter 7, we're told that this was taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a very specific one of the fall feasts of Israel. And now we see the Feast of Dedication, which was not one of the feasts prescribed in the Law of Moses. It was added later. Uh, we call it Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. Yeah, And that's so helpful, Bill, because I was wondering as I was reading why it was important to say it was winter. It's <laughs> just like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Jesus went out or, you know, these, the, one of those things, but it's an important time placement. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very intentional by John in some way to draw attention to this story as a continuation of the flow that he's already built with what we've already seen throughout chapter nine, through the first part of chapter 10. And I think there might be some weight here to the fact that he's waiting to tell this story to place it in the festival of the dedication. So you mentioned, Bill, that it was added later. What was the festival of dedication? Well, back in the 160s BC, the Assyrians came through Jerusalem and they they ravaged the nation and they defiled the temple. And a group of brothers led by the one brother named Judah, Judah Maccabee, Judah the Hammer, led them in pulling together really kind of like a militia type army. And they actually drove the Assyrians out of the country. That meant that once the Assyrians were gone, they could restore proper worship at the temple in Jerusalem, but they couldn't until they had purified oil to light the lamps with. And it's when they had the purified oil and were able to relight the lamps in the temple, that's what the Feast of Dedication, it was the dedication of the temple and the restoration of light. That's why it's sometimes called the Festival of Lights. Now, why might... John be telling this story here connected to what we've seen in John 8, 9, and 10? Well, I think there's a connection between light and sight, you know, that you see going all the way back to Jesus in John chapter 1 being described as the light of the world and, you know, this idea of light illuminates. So I think there's a kind of basic connection in that sense. I wonder also, Daniel, as Jesus in the previous many parables talked about himself as the shepherd and the gate and the good shepherd. And now once again, he's going to describe himself as the shepherd. I wonder if he's realigning their expectations because I think if you asked most Jews in the first century what Messiah was going to be like, the description they would give would be much more like the Maccabees Mm -hmm. than like Jesus. They wanted someone who would drive out Rome like the Maccabeans had driven Mm. out the Assyrians. Mm. They wanted someone who would be a military conqueror. And uh, Jesus was coming to say, that's not the kind of Messiah I am. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who lays down my life for the sheep, you know. I wonder if he's doing some recalibration there of their expectations. Yeah, I'm sure. And he seems to be kind of pulling on these threads of being the light of the world in chapter 8. Now it's during the Festival of Lights. Chapter 9 was him healing a man born blind and talking a lot about blindness, as Rasul, you were kind of talking about. So there's these themes of light, illumination, of seeing clearly, those types of things. And what's interesting, too, this is the last public teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So this is going to be the last moment that we have this type of interaction with him in in this chapter. And so where is Jesus in this final interaction? 
Well, it says he's in Solomon's Colonnade. What do we know about Solomon's Colonnade? It was a porch that was part of the temple complex. And when you get into the book of Acts, that's where the early church will sometimes go and meet for prayer. And that's important because it was one of the places the Gentiles were allowed to gather at the temple. It was right next to the court of the Gentiles. And so they could come into Solomon's colonnade, which might be what Jesus kind of gives a nod to where he talks about there's people outside of this fold that I want to bring in Mm -hmm. as my sheep because they belong to me. So maybe it's a nod to the Gentiles. So all of this gets to this moment of them asking Jesus for what? What's the question they ask Jesus? How long will you keep us in suspense? Yeah, if, if you are the Messiah, please just tell us plainly. And Jesus responds by saying, I have told you and you did not believe. Now, I'm sure Bill's going to push back on me on this, but has Jesus actually clearly said, I am the Messiah? He clearly said, I am uh-huh. at the end of chapter 8, which was taking the name of God. I mean, we talked about this, I think, Mm -hmm. last week a little bit in the fact that if you're going to be grammatically correct, he would say, before Abraham was, I was. Mm -hmm. But he says, I am to leverage that name that God spoke to Moses from out of the burning bush. I would also add that we see a clarification right after that where he says, the works that I do in my father's name testify to me. So that's using verbal language to describe what his works have done. So he's saying, okay, you just seen me give sight to someone who was born blind, something you have never seen before. And if you go back to Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon the Messiah to offer Mm -hmm. recovery of sight to the blind. So in a sense, he's saying, I have told you through my works, I have told you through my teaching who I am, and they testify to me. Yeah. But what would be the most clear statement Jesus could make about being the Messiah? I am the Messiah. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> like, like they just asked Jesus, please just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Yeah. Yes, I am the Messiah would be the clearest (laughs) statement he could make. But apparently he felt like he had said it clearly enough that he responds with, I've already told you that. But I just think this is a gift to us, though, because sometimes we get so confused in these passages and we're just wanting clarity. And it's okay. We're right in line with those people that were there with Jesus who are also like, please just tell us plainly. And then Jesus kind of describes another metaphor or a parable again. He doesn't say it in the the clearest sense in a way that I would expect. But he does exactly what, Rasul, you were describing. He talks about the works that he did and that those testify to the fact that God is in this and that he is from God. But there's another question, too, that I've been thinking about a lot, which is he seems to be claiming to be God. And so did the Pharisees expect the Messiah to be God? Or did they expect the Messiah to be from God? And it feels like the more that I've dug into that, I don't know what you guys have have found, but it seems like their expectation was for him to be from God, but not necessarily to be God. So when he says, I and the Father are one, that would have been even more confusing to them rather than clarifying. No, it would have been clarifying to them as to why they needed to kill him. (laughs) Right. Because he was making a claim there that was just blasphemous in their minds. Yeah, because what's the Shema, the thing that they would recite all the time? What does it kind of start with? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one, right? There is one God. And so for Jesus, like this is the first Trinitarian 
controversy, Jesus claiming to be God as well, right? Like before we get into councils later in church history and all that stuff, this is the moment where the Pharisees clearly hear Jesus claiming to be God. What they were asking was, are you the Messiah? And so I feel like there's a little bit of a difference there. One of the lines that I really want to draw our attention to, because I find this really encouraging too, is Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Mm. What does that make you think? How does that make you feel, especially in light of everything that we've described in chapter 9 and 10? Well, again, he's describing the safety of the sheepfold. Only the sheepfold is now much smaller. It's not just this wall in which the sheep come and stay, we're actually held and protected in our shepherd's hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no thief or robber or hired hand or whoever, wolf, can come and steal us away. Yeah. So think about what Jesus has described about his sheep. He knows them by name. They know his voice. He protects them. He goes out in front of them. He holds them in his hand. No one can snatch them out of his hand. He lays down his life for the sheep. All this confusion that we started talking about at the very beginning of who is Jesus and what is he like and what is this Messiah like and all of those things, Jesus is slowly giving this beautiful picture of the type of Messiah that he is. He's very different from their messianic expectation, but if they accepted him, they would find that he was much better than their messianic expectation. Yo, I just... Daniel, tell me if I'm off on this, but I feel like this crescendo is starting to make sense when you put the pieces together. Why is he mixing metaphors? Because one metaphor doesn't do because he's Mm. over and beyond any Mm. of the individual. He's not just David, who was a good shepherd. He's the son of David, who actually created David, right? Like he's not (laughs) just a gate. And in terms of what Bill was just saying with the messianic expectation, what better place than to reveal and break their messianic expectations than at Hanukkah festival where there was a Mm -hmm. messianic expectation of the Maccabees, but now you're elevating that to a different level, which became very nationalistic Mm -hmm. and says, Mm -hmm. actually, it's not just about us. It's I'm going out and getting additional sheep and I am fulfilling the full vision of what it means, but that can only be possible because I am not just a man. Yeah. And Jesus really emphasizes that by the way it ends, where he claims to be God so clearly that the Pharisees decide, okay, we got to arrest him. So literally this whole section ends with, which we'll see next time, the fact that they want to kill him. And so that's where we'll pick up the story. And so this is where all we've been talking about in these two episodes of the podcast is led to Jesus revealing who he is. Now, they probably expected the Messiah to come from God. But this claiming to actually be God, that was a surprise and was not what they expected at all. And so what Jesus says in response to their anger and unbelief is where we'll close this study of John 9 and 10. Because many finally were beginning to understand what Jesus was claiming. And while some believed, others were not happy about it at all. And they felt like they had to do something about it. And so we will wrap this up right after we take time to peek ahead to what we'll be doing in our next Discover the Word podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, author and pastor Robert Gelinas joins the group for a look at the most often prayed prayer in the Bible, the Mercy Prayer. 
Lord, have mercy. When you start going through scriptures, the most prayed prayer in the Bible is some form of the mercy prayer. It is the most prayed prayer in the Bible. Now, this is a re-release of some conversations that we had with Robert almost 10 years ago now. But I'm not going to lie, we were shaped by this focus on the mercy prayer. And so be part of the group as they talk about making the Bible's most prayed prayer our most prayed prayer. The Mercy Prayer, next time on the Discover the Word podcast. And now, here is the conclusion of our study of John 9 and 10. John 10, verses 31 through 42. Let's go around and pick up where we are in the story. Maybe, Bill, you could get us started. Okay. John 10, verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I show you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? If those to whom the word of God came were called God's, and the scripture cannot be annulled, Can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said, I am God's son? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then they tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him, and they were saying, John performed no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So why do the Jews want to stone Jesus? Because they understand what he's saying. I mean, he, as we saw in the last conversation, Daniel, he might not have been clearly answering their question, are you the Messiah? But he was clearly making a self-identifying statement that they completely understood. Yeah, because he was claiming to be God. And they may not have expected the Messiah to be God, but to be from God. And Jesus seems to be answering a question they didn't ask, which is, they asked, are you the Messiah? And Jesus is saying, I'm God, uh, which seems to completely up the emphasis of of what was happening in this passage. Jesus quotes kind of a confusing response. I feel like we're getting into this habit of someone asks a question and Jesus responds with something that doesn't feel very clear. (laughs) And so that kind of happens here as well. Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. And if somebody would read that, we'll kind of hear, I guess, what Jesus is referring to there. I got it. Psalm 82, 6. I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. And then how does it end? Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So what is Psalm? It might be helpful to know a little bit of the context of Psalm 82. So what is Psalm 82 about? Well, it's in book three. Mm -hmm. Book three is the kind of falling apart of the kingdom that leads to captivity. So this passage comes as a critique to Israel because God has appointed them to be his justice workers in the Uh world. These workers of justice were supposed to care for the weak, for the orphan, for the lowly, for the destitute. 
but instead the psalm describes them showing favoritism to the wicked and those wicked are those who take advantage of the most vulnerable. And so they're not doing their job as the justice workers. And as a result, God is going to judge them for that. So how is Jesus kind of using that idea or some of those ideas here to describe this answer to the Pharisees' question? I'm not sure if I'm going to say this very clearly either, but is he calling them up to or back to the best God had in his creative intent for them, for all of us? You know, I I put you here to be my image bearers, and you're not doing that. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it, for sure. Rasul, I can see an expression on your face. I feel like you either have something to say or a question (laughs) or something. (laughs) I don't want to... um kind of bury the lead here. I mean, this is pretty shocking stuff. I mean, that on the surface, his defense for his divinity is pointing to a verse that on the surface seems to project a certain sense of divinity onto all of us, or at Mm -hmm. least the people in in Psalm 82, which would have been, you know, maybe the, the rulers of Israel. And then say, how can you say, I'm doing something wrong and claiming my divinity when the law says that you're divine. (laughs) I'm just saying that's kind of weird. Like I, before, I mean, I'm sure it has some good explanations to it. It's just like, that wouldn't have been the reasoning I would have assumed Jesus would have rolled out in this passage. And uh, so on the surface, it's like, that's interesting. And I wonder if there's a rhetorical strategy that is kind of being highlighted to say, that there are clear connections that you can make from the law that point to me. But that's not what he said. Like, I'm just got to, you know, right right there in the moment, it just seems like he's making this verse and saying, hey, it's saying that you are God, so why are you getting mad at me when I call myself God? And I wonder if this kind of ties into what you were describing in our last conversation, which was Jesus uses a bunch of different metaphors because no one Mm. metaphor captures really fully who Jesus is. And maybe in this passage, what Jesus is doing is like, look, first of all, you shouldn't be that surprised with what I'm saying because it's written in the Old Testament that all of us are representatives of God, our sons and daughters of God. Yeah. Mm. Going all the way back to Genesis 1. But then I wonder if what Jesus is doing is setting up the fact that he fulfills that in a way that no other human being has Mm -hmm. ever been able to fulfill it. Yeah, that he's like this ultimate picture of what it means to be human and a son of God. Because he's already claimed to be God, so it's almost like now he's emphasizing the fact that he's also fully human in a way that he is the justice worker that shows the rest of us what that really looks like in the world. You know, Daniel, I think all of this projects back to the term that Elisa used, and it's one that we hear a lot in church circles, and that's the term image bearer. Uh, We're all created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, as a way of representing God, to use your term. And I think that what Jesus is pointing to there, while it feels complicated and even a little bit obtuse, he's really pointing back to that original creative intent of God, that as his sons and daughters in the world— that we would represent him well, and they weren't doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. who was the person that Jesus approaches in chapter 9, and he does a work of justice and cares for that person, right? Because all of this man. is building yeah. off of that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the blind man. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Jesus healed a person who was most vulnerable, 
And then later on in the story, when that blind man gets kicked out of the synagogue because he declares who Jesus is, we got to that amazing verse where it says, Jesus heard that he had been kicked out and went and found him. That's one of my right? favorite parts of this whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So Jesus is this justice worker who looks mm-hmm. out for the most vulnerable, goes after them, just like he's a shepherd who leads his sheep and goes out in front of them. So he seems to be kind of setting up this whole idea. And then ultimately he points to kind of a litmus test for here's the best way you can figure out who I am. Look at the works that I've done. Like, let's just, let's, Mm -hmm. let's get rid of everything else. Just look at the works that I've done. Am I the type of person you would expect to be the Messiah Mm -hmm. or not? Mm -hmm. Like if I were to paraphrase what I hear Jesus saying there is I said, I'm the son of God. If I'm doing the works of the father, believe me. But if I'm not doing the works of the Father, then don't believe me, right? Like, here's the works. And if you don't believe in what I'm saying, just believe in me because of the works that you see, which, Rasul, you kind of pulled on that thread before as well. And so as a result of all of this, what ends up happening at the the end of this section, the end of chapter 10? They try to arrest him again, and he escapes into the Transjordan to get away. And I guess it's when he's there that... As you move the story forward, he gets word that his friend Lazarus is ill. Yeah. And that leads into that story. But also at the end of chapter 10, some want to arrest him again, but others believed in him. Yeah. So we end up at this two groups again that we've kind of been tracking through chapter 9, tracking through chapter 10 of one group tries to arrest Jesus again, tries to kill Jesus. They're convinced that he is not the Messiah. But then there's this other group that do exactly what Jesus says. They see the works that he is doing, and they're like, man, this guy has to be from God. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they believe in him. Yeah, and I kind of think when we look at the entire context that you've helped us with going from John 7, I think we can see essentially the argument that Jesus is making by appealing to Psalm 82.6. He's not literally saying this verse proves that I'm divine because we all are. What he's saying is you're not even being consistent with your own argument because you're about to stone me for saying something that is in the law. And yet you say you keep the law, but you are blind guides that Mm -hmm. are actually not trying to be about discovering who I am, but you're really trying to do the exact thing that Psalm 82 was warning against, which is keeping influence power for yourself and not distributing it to the people because the key component of Psalm 82 is this pointing to the works that you ought to do as judges and you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. I am. And yet you're using some technicality to try to condemn me. Yeah. And that goes back, Rasul, to earlier in chapter 10, when we see the character in that mini parable of the gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. A gatekeeper can be either a positive or a negative. It can be either a protector or a prohibition. And I think that what you're pointing out is that they're taking their gatekeeper role to such an extent that they're even prohibiting the understanding of their own scriptures. The gatekeepers are preventing the shepherd from getting to the sheep. Yeah. And the sheep from getting to the shepherd. And all of this comes as a response to the questions that disciples ask when they pass a man born blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? (laughs) And so we have all of this (laughs) kind of unfolding as a result of that one question. 
And the point was, this isn't a judgment story. This is a story to reveal who Jesus is and the works that he will do. And we get introduced to this very good shepherd who knows his sheep by name. He loves them. They know his voice. He protects them. He leads them out to pasture, which Psalm 23 describes as uh, green pastures and still waters. And ultimately, he lays down his life for his sheep because he loves them that much. And the amazing thing, of course, about this story is that we're invited to be a sheep too and to find that he is our good shepherd as well. And so when we began this study, do you remember that I said that what Jesus said about being the good shepherd was where we were headed? But hasn't all the time we spent getting the context around that statement made it so much richer? Yeah, context really is king when studying the Bible, isn't it? It's a tool we always need to use. And I hope you have a bigger and better understanding of not only these two chapters now, but also of the entire story of Jesus and how John tells it in his gospel. Daniel Ryan Day, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Rasul Berry were around the table with you for this two-part study called John 9 and 10. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the Scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, here at Our Daily Bread Ministries, our why behind everything we do is to tell the story of Jesus. We've been doing that for over 85 years now. And Discover the Word is just one of the ways God continues to work through Our Daily Bread Ministries and show His goodness and faithfulness in the lives of millions around the world. Whether it's through radio and audio or video, books or DVDs, mobile apps or websites, or devotionals in English or the language spoken in the over 150 countries we're privileged to serve, God continues to allow us to live out our mission of making the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible available to all. But we couldn't do that without the support from members of our Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries family, just like you. So join us in spreading the good news of Jesus by signing up to become a financial partner when you visit our website at discovertheword.org. Click the Donate button up at the top of the page at discovertheword.org. All right, well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.